This week on Hacker in the Fed, Hector and I will discuss IMSI catchers, or cell phone eavesdropping devices. One was recently found in a car in Paris driving near the U.S. Embassy. We're also going to discuss Lulsec's hack of PBS and how a DDoS operation assisted Hector in that hack. This leads us to a discussion of botnets and some of the dangers associated with them. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Hey, Hector, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty well, my friend. Uh, how about you? How's everything uh, going on with you and Naxo and all that good stuff? It's going great. So, uh, Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year's, man. That's uh, it's a new year. Happy holidays. Not only to you and your family, but of course, the audience. We'll make the audience think this is the first time we've talked in the new year. <laughs> Pull back the curtain. It's not. So, yeah, you, you asked me about Naxo. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You, you know, normally this time of year, um, historically, you know, things have kind of slowed down in my world. But, man, a lot of new cases coming in, which is good. You know, uh, we got a new one coming in, like a corporate investigation. It's like companies that want help from an FBI agent without a badge. Um, mm. They want that FBI touch, but can't get it from, you know, because using the FBI, you know, you're not going to have that same uh, input into your case. Cryptocurrency is getting out of control for us. I mean, the cryptocurrency investigations, uh, lawyers are asking us for litigation support. One of the side projects that we're doing really good with is uh, unlocking people's uh, crypto. Like they forgot their wallet or their passwords that, you know, they can't access it anymore. Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully, you know, if people have that issue, they'll reach out to us at Nexo and we can help them with that. Yeah. I mean, I would say myself as a researcher and as as someone that, um, you know, there's always curious about how things work. I'm hopeful that one day, without obviously giving up your methodology and, and your intellectual property, but I would love to hear kind of like a general gist of, of what your process is for, um, for you know, cracking into those wallets and, and, and hopefully retrieving the, the, the crypto coins or uh, the cryptocurrency for your clients. I mean, like, I know it's huge and I know they're, they're like super happy when you, uh, when you guys – get in there right yeah they they're they mean they thought it's, it's lost money so it's you know it's it's fantastic that we get in there but so one thing we're seeing at naxo and i'm think i think you probably are seeing it in your world too is that mm -hmm. these small to medium-sized companies are really really grabbing a hold of their cybersecurity and wanting to get ahead of it um i know we talked about it in an episode in the past where you know all your clients are kind of hitting you at the end of the year but that's continuing on for us like we're seeing a lot of stuff coming in um you know small to medium just wanted to you know wrap their heads around their, their cybersecurity and, and, and not let it get out of control. 100%. In fact, most of the business that we had this year, aside from the big clients, right, there's always going to be the big clients that pop up. Um, but I would say most of it was with the SMBs, right, the small, medium businesses. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy about that, right? Not just happy because obviously, you know, we have more business, uh, but it's good to see a lot of these organizations are, uh, you know, really thinking about and taking their, um, security program serious, you know. Um, for a long time, I felt like, and and you, and you could attribute this uh, attribute this to many different variables, but I felt like for a long time, you know, SMBs essentially, um, you know, they just bought a product or two and, and maybe hired someone to look at logs, and that's it. Um, and I would say the the biggest uh, uh, reason for that was budgeting, right? Budgeting is always hard to deal with, especially when when you know you're, you're working with tight budgets overall. 
but then you also have to kind of sell it to your board. Um, I have my own theories, if you don't mind. I'll jump in here real quick. I think that one of the theories, aside from ransomware, is the fact that a lot of states now um, are requiring some sort of cyber insurance. And that's something that I hopeful, I'm hopeful. i hopeful that you and I, uh, you know, we have a great discussion about that another time. I definitely think we can have a great episode about cyber insurance. Oh, yeah. And it really needs to be demystified, for sure. But you know, I do want to ask you another question about, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, like Naxo. And, and, you know, you brought up a point about an organization uh, coming to a company like Naxo and wanting like that, you know, that former FBI twist, right? That uh, maybe your methodology, maybe the way you guys do things. Um, do you feel that some organizations may trust uh, maybe a private entity um, or may want to deal with a private entity prior to engaging like the FBI, for example? Have you seen um, those kind of situations? I mean, we I'm working a major case right now for that where they were putting together like, it's it's called a law enforcement referral. So, mm. you know, they, they come to us and they have an idea of how they want either, you know, something packaged up or, or you know, it, they think it's a good FBI case. But, you know, sometimes they just need to be packaged in a way that, that the FBI is more likely to, you know, to see the criminal activity and the case involved in it. So, you know, anything you can do to make it easier because the FBI is inundated with cases. So of course. anything yeah. you can do to, you know, make a, a case, you know, Hey, these are the things that would be subpoenaed. These would be really good investigative leads. Um, you know, take it right to that step and make it easier for them um, and, and show them, you know, the, the, the illegal act and how it's affecting the, you know, Americans um, and, and how this needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, we're, we're, doing that all the time where you know one of, one of the cases we're working on now is really good because it's a big technical angle um so we're su- super excited to dive into that and kind of you know see how things work underneath the hood and, and and come up with uh you know the team comes together and really builds things uh by by communicating with each other and we all have our, our you know our points that we can do better than the others and so mm-hmm. you know building the team together to do that uh it's, it's exciting for me it's it's just like being in the fbi again Hector, so you sent me over an article today about a device that was found in uh, in Paris. Let's talk about that because this is really cool. Oh yeah, no, it, it was very cool. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where you kind of hear about the potential, but you don't really get to see it up close or in real life as often. So, uh, you know, to kind of you know avoid beating around the bush here. Just a few days ago, on December 30th, uh, French authorities were able to identify uh, a device in the back of a vehicle. Uh, the vehicle was driven by a woman. Uh, she seemed like she may have been uh, on narcotics. I mean, that's kind of what the allegedly, El- allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> according to the according to like the El Parisian, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, kind of article on this. Um, there was a vehicle. There was a device in the back and. Uh, the device was actually destroyed by the French authorities. They thought it was a bomb, okay? Uh, but they were able to take some pictures uh, prior to detonation that, uh, that you know, InfoSec Twitter found curious. I found it interesting, and we kind of had to uh, to talk about it today. Like, I, I think it's very cool. If you don't mind, I kind of want to nerd it out with you guys here for a second. So the device that we're talking about, um, you may have heard about it in different kind of different names, different phrases, 
Um, you may have heard about it as uh, a Stingray or IMS, uh, IMSI catcher um, or even a cell site simulator. It really depends on who you talk to and, um, you know, where you, where you, uh, where you kind of heard the term or phrase or even heard about the topic. Uh, but essentially, it's a device that would allow an adversary to actively or passively interact with your phone and uh, collect metadata and other information, depending on the scenario um, and depending on your phone and how it's configured and, and a bunch of other different variables. Um, fascinating stuff. There is a researcher on Twitter, Hacker Fantastic. Um, some of you, some of you may remember his exploits from back in the days when he was uh, he ran by uh, the name PR Delka. The cool thing is that you know he's he's big into like hardware, and he put together a thread kind of discussing some of the components of the device. And you know I got to say, Chris, um, even though you know judging by the thread and judging by the opinions of the folks that kind of touch on the subject or reply to him, it seems like it's kind of like an outdated uh, put together. Uh, albeit expensive. Yeah, I, I'm seeing it. I'm looking at it. And it, it looks like you know it, it's you know got venting and it's got a power source and a mm-hmm. and a, 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 a 40 watt GSM amp. And it, it says, you know, it, the people online are saying it's you know it, they don't think it's like a, a professional um, kit put together. You know, there's they're saying there's a lot of Chinese parts in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unlikely government or IC intelligence community just because of this. You know, these are a lot of, you know, Internet sleuths. But, you know, it's kind of scary having these devices. You know, we talked about it before we jumped on the pod. And, and you know, you know, you were mentioning one of the attack vectors that these things can use through uh, 5G, 2G. Why don't you go into that? Yeah. So, I mean, the general idea is, you know, again, it, it, it depends on variables, it depends on all sorts of different things. But generally, when you hear about uh, a cell site simulator um, or a Stingray, what you really are usually hearing about is a passive device that just kind of sits there collecting information as the user drives by. And I think you mentioned earlier, like, word driving was an old concept where folks used to drive by and kind of listen for and identify uh, potentially weak Wi-Fi networks um, along various routes, you know. In this case, you know, this woman was driving around with his device in the back. We have no idea because the device was detonated, but we have no idea uh, whether it was in passive or active mode. Um, either way, if it wasn't, let's say, um, you know, let's say that you have a pretty recent Android. Uh, this might surprise some of you folks because there is there seems to be a, a bit of confusion about the capability of these devices, Right. Back when these devices were conceptualized or even put together or patented, um, there were a lot of dumb devices, right? Like the old Nokia phones, the brick phones. Uh, so the idea and concept here is that this device would, uh, you know, be effective against an older device or the uh, older cell phone rather. Uh, but the reality is that even modern phones have access to, um, to, to interface with the 2G network and because of that, and by the way, this 2G network stands for second generation cellular, cellular network. Um, you know, it was heavily attached to the GSM network back in the days. Um, and so the, the, the point here is that if your device has a 2G uh, interface, then more than likely you could be targeted here. Just one point I wanted to make in terms of mitigation, Chris, is that as far as I know, I could be wrong. Um, I'm not an iPhone user, but as far as I know from what I've read, 
iPhones do not have the capability to disable the device. But if you're using a recent Android, if you go into your settings and search for 2G, um, if you have a recent updated OS, you should have the capability to actually disable that interface. Um, so it may mitigate most, if not all, of the components of this attack. Um, but it's, it's quite fascinating. You know, imagine a scenario where you, you have the latest and greatest phone and you have nothing installed on it. You maybe have signal for messaging, maybe WhatsApp for calling, maybe. And so you're thinking, okay, I'm cool, I'm safe. Um, but no, if you have 2G enabled on your device, uh, the adversary can still, you know, intercept and or uh, sniff traffic between you and your cell phone towers or providers. So yeah, it's definitely a real problem today. As for the point that you made, Chris, where, you know, folks online are kind of saying it's kind of a crude device. It seems like it was put together by an amateur. The reality is, is that the woman was arrested less than three kilometers away from the U.S. Embassy. And that's something to really think about. This is, this is not, regardless if it was put together by the IC community or put together by a foreign actor, somebody somewhere put this device together and the woman was arrested you know, near some very important places. Yeah, no, I've been to Paris a few times. The U.S. Embassy is in a, in a very important spot, and it's not the only embassy in that area. So, mm. I mean, this isn't really new, though. I mean, I, I was reading in 2018, you know, a bunch of these devices were found near the White House. So, I mean, this has been, uh, you know, an IC, uh, you know, attack for years. Are, are we seeing it more now uh, outside the IC? Are we seeing it, you know, are, are people doing this um, near homes? I mean, that's such a great question, right? The, the reality is, is that even if you were to use an app or even build a device to identify, you know, one of these simulators, you wouldn't really know whether or not it's, it's, it's legitimate or not, right? I mean, I mean, you could argue that it, such a device wouldn't be legitimate anyway if you are privacy-centric, for example. But even if you were to identify one of these devices, whether it's outside the White House or outside your home, uh, who do you call for validation, right? And even if you, you were able to call the FBI and the FBI was interested, how do you deal with attribution? Like, how do you identify whether or not this is, a, a, you know, part of a law enforcement operation or it's a bad actor? Now, as time, you know, has progressed, as we've made it to 2023, a lot of the components to build such a device have gotten cheaper and cheaper. And so, theoretically, anyone, anybody with internet access and a credit card, um, or even cryptocurrency, could buy the devices necessary to make this. So yeah, I think it's going to be a problem as we have more folks interested in, in you know, being spooky. So fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. It, it brings up the question, like I know there was a, a while back, there was a question of, well, should we make uh, software-defined radios or SDRs illegal? Is that a thing? How How can we make that illegal anyway? And, you know, it, it, it kind of leads us to, like, the, the problem of banning guns, you know, and not to get into that hot mess, but, you know, how would you ban the capability of listening to, to radio frequencies? Yeah, I mean, so I, as you're talking, I'm thinking here, I said, you know, is it illegal to have one of these? And, and, and I, I, I would say it would be illegal. I can't think of the law it is. I know it's illegal to have a cell phone jammer. Yeah, you can't. You know, for safety reasons, you can't be able to turn off people's access to nine one one or call for safety. So you know, you have to get a special license in order to have cell phone jammers in 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 
you know, I can't even think of legitimate why a legitimate business would you would you be allowed to have when you can't have it at a movie theater or anything like that where it might be useful because gotta hate when people's cell phones ring in the in a movie theater. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I used to I used to hang out in certain parts of uh, of Manhattan and Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and and Grand Street over there in Manhattan, um, and even parts of Crown Heights where you walk into a block and there's like jammers. You know, your cell phone loses uh, bars immediately. And so the idea is that, you know, there are some people out there with jammers. Now, when you look at the screen, uh, the pictures that the the article posted, or even if you look at Hacker Fantastic's um, uh, Twitter thread on this topic, there is a reference to the fact that there may be two radios, one that acts as a listener and the other one that acts as a jammer. And so if what you're telling me, because I, I don't know the legalities of it, obviously, but if you're telling me that jamming, Sailor signals is a problem. And yeah, she or this this person, you know, definitely, uh, you know, went beyond the scope, right? right? Well, I don't know French law. I'm just saying the United States here. Yeah, you can't have sure. you can't have the jammers. So yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see what people are, you know, driving. You know, being a local cop, you can have some exciting things and come up with something like this. <laughs> I, I do wish they didn't blow it up. Um, you know, I, I wish we could dig in uh, and get more details on it besides the pictures, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I guess they 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 do what they think is best. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think we we lost some good evidence on this one. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it would have been great to reverse engineer it. It would have been great to uh, to maybe even identify a source. Maybe this person was kind of like a mule, right? Or maybe this person didn't even know that um, they were driving around with this device in the back of the car. I mean, who knows? There's so many different variables, and since the device has been destroyed, we really don't know. But it, there's, there's one thing that I want the audience to know, right? I mean, we don't hark on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like, that's not what, I, what we do. You know, our goal here is to provide you information, and you kind of use that information to kind of figure out, you know, how you want to mitigate some of these attack vectors. So, you know, when you look at one of these devices, um, there's you have to understand that there's, there's at least two different modes, or there's two main modes in how these devices operate. Um, you have that active mode, and then you have the passive mode. And when you have an active mode set up here, um, it's it's it could be targeted, right? It's it's a scenario where you know let's assume let's put together a scenario here where law enforcement they're tracking like a, a domestic terrorist, and um, you know they're driving nearby the person, or maybe they're they're parked four blocks away from their home, and so they have this device kind of sitting there actively monitoring their target IMSI. What the device that, you know, they found in France seems to be is a passive one where it kind of just, you know, it's kind of sits there and listens for communications for everybody within that region, within that area. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely problematic. Again, for your Android users, definitely try to block your or, or disable your 2G. And for you Apple folks, you know, good luck. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to tell you at this point. Uh, maybe go back to beepers. That, that might be uh, useful. That's a fascinating story. I'm looking. To, uh, I'm excited about to see if it plays out. If uh, you know other ones of these devices are found. If we're, we're now going to keep, you know, local law enforcement is going to keep their eyes open. So uh, let's keep on top of this and see how it develops over time. Absolutely. So, Hector, I was listening to an old episode uh, we did, you know, two or three episodes ago, where uh, the audience got to interview you, and uh, they asked you about what your favorite hack was. You know, one of my favorite hacks, and and I I don't, you know, really remember all the details of it, was the hack Lulsec did on PBS, 
where you you hacked into their system and you put up a, a you you or Lulsec, the group whoever um, put up an article that uh, Tupac Shakur and um, and was it Biggie or was it just Tupac that they were still alive? Yeah, it, it was Tupac and Biggie living happily in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it, it was it was it was definitely a time in my life where I you know I. I I, I made some terrible mistakes. That that was definitely not a good decision on my end. I was just just to clear up, you know, any confusion about the compromise. So I engaged the compromise. Um, I identified the vulnerability. I identified the privilege escalation, and then of course dealt with you know the, dealing with the file system. And but the one thing I'll say is that I I, I, I I'm not clever enough to come up with the big and two box story. Um, that was definitely the other members of LulzSec that you know. Um, the, the, they at least had that skill. They, they can come up with some funny stuff. Let me ask you, what took longer, writing the article or uh, hacking into PBS? Well, the compromise itself took me longer because I had to use... So there was... there was Okay. So it, it was a multi-phase like phase attack. It wasn't kind of like, uh, hey, I found a SQL injection that I'm in, right? That, that really was not it. Well, first, first, can, can you tell us how you found the target? Like, what, what made you, what brought you to PBS? So here's what happened. There was a PBS NewsHour kind of like docu-story. I mean, I like NewsHour, but it kind of did a piece where I personally felt that they, you know, they, they focused on, on Chelsea Manning's sexuality rather than, I would say, the reason behind her actions, Okay. And at that point, you know, I was a super uh, big supporter of Chelsea Manning, and I, uh, I, I just, I, I just didn't understand, you know, why that piece was so dedicated to to their personal life and specifically sexuality. I, I, I be honest with you, I, I got pissed off. I got pissed off about it, and um, you know, I'm sharing this story because I, I want the audience to know that uh, definitely don't do what Hector does. The, or at least did back then. So I got I got upset and I began to do what I call now a, a free penetration test assessment against PBS. And, and, and I just want to say something, folks. That I'm a big, big fan and supporter of PBS. I've always have been. And it, it wasn't necessarily an attack against, you know, uh, PBS organization or uh, the people get, uh, behind it. It was really like, well, I, I want to take that story down. And that's That wasn't right. But... Once I identified that, you know, I, I kind of wanted to make a, a a point about, you know, the fact that I did not like that news hour uh, docu story. I would say I spent some time identifying vulnerabilities in the PBS network. I focused first on DNS, looked at the email security configurations, and then I started looking at their network and the IP blocks and IP ranges associated to PBS. And eventually, I found a web server, and the web server had some web applications on it. And, uh, you know, I found a local file inclusion, but it was very limited because the way PBS's network was structured, they had a very crude cluster kind of setup where they would have uh, a ton of different web servers doing a round robin, right? They were kind of rotating on uh, on uh, via DNS. And so if I would find a local file inclusion in, in a web app and it would run on web, one web server, it may not run on another because of configuration changes. Uh, or differences, rather. So it took me quite a while 
to turn that LFI or local file inclusion um, into uh, the next phase, which was finding credentials. Once I was able to find credentials, um, you know, again, these credentials were related to a web application. So now I needed to find credentials that I could use for their movable type CRM or blog software. I did find credentials that worked. I was able to log into their movable type blog. And then then I had to audit movable type itself to find another vulnerability that would allow me to upload um, a a PHP shell to the web server. And it it was a mess. It it was a dirty mess. It was not a clean hack at all. I probably left logs everywhere. And uh, the reality is that eventually we got in. Uh, Well, I got in. Once I got in, the next step was, well, can we leave a message on the NewsHour website? And now that I gave access to my, the rest of my team for the NewsHour movable type blog you know, login, then they put together the Biggie Smalls Tupac story. And, um, but here's one thing that was fascinating, Chris. Uh, almost immediately, the administrators for PBS logged in. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was crazy. It was... Uh, for any of you that ever watched the movie Hackers, when, you know, the, the ragtag team, they get into the, the Gibson and they're getting blocked off by, uh, what was the guy's name? The Plague. You know, as they're getting blocked off, you know, you see the, the visual. The visuals, uh, their laptops are suddenly disconnecting or they're turning off, which is not what happened in real life. <laughs> but uh, the administrators definitely tried to stop me from, from you know, Kind of controlling the uh, the web server, or at least the file contents. How do you think they found out you were in there? Like, what, what did you do? You think? I mean, you said it was loud and noisy and all that, but but like, what did they have? Some sort of device, some intrusion detection device, or anything? Well, I can't say for sure. Okay, right? Because even some of the devices were running like Linux kernel version two point two. Then they had other systems that were like updated up to that point. Um, they had different software on different servers. The point is, it was very inconsistent. And I think it's also why they had problems getting rid of me. But eventually, there was a point where they started to disconnect my connections to the network. They tried, at least. Another member of LawSec uh, who was very big into the distributed denial of service attacks and botnets, you know, I basically gave him the administrator IPs. And he would, uh, unfortunately, DDoS them offline while I was continuing with the attack. So wait a sec. So as you're you're in there hacking, you're now getting kind of booted off systems and all that. So that caused you to say, how the hell am I getting booted off these systems? You then go into the logs to see how it's getting boot you're getting booted off or or what are you what are you looking to see see how this is happening? Well, I can't really I can't really say for sure, right? It's not like I was logging into these systems via SSH. Yeah. Um I was actually opening up reverse tunnels through the okay. web server. And so the only assumption that I could make is their administrators were looking at the network logs or they were looking at web server logs, or, I mean, it could be as simple as running Netstat, you know, uh, Netstat is, is a, is a, is a, is a binary or a command on a, on a Linux based system or Unix based system. Um, you can even find it on windows as well. It kind of gives you a, a kind of a rough, uh, listing of open connections. Um, it could be as simple as that. The reality is that at some point they started kicking me off of certain web servers. And so then you found their IPs that the admins were coming in from and started kicking them off the network? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wasn't kicking them off their network. Um, well, you were DDoSing their networks. Well, what are, what are, I really wasn't into DDoS, but no. one of the guys from LawStack started DDoSing their IP addresses. And um, how I got the IP addresses is because as I had root access to a large majority of the PBS servers, I could actually see when the admins would log in SSHN and I could see like their home IPs or whatever it was. Was that a new attack vector for you to keep admins out or had you, had you done this before? I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, I've, I've run into this situation before, um, but I would use like a no route, right? I would, I would route the, the, I would know the route between the IP address of the, of the admin um, with the system itself using the route commands. So essentially what I was doing there was I was telling the system, Hey, if you see traffic between this IP and this IP, um, then just send it to DevNo, right? Send it to the void. Uh, and that would kill off an admin. But since we were doing the PBS hack live in real time, I had no time to sit there and just like no route a bunch of random IPs. Um, I just told, you know, I, I let one of my guys know, hey, listen, these are the IPs for the admins. See what you can do. I mean, I've always found that intriguing to do that. It's, so let me ask you, I'll go out on a tangent. I think people that's listened to my interview on Lex Friedman or something knows that I love tangents. <laughs> okay. <laughs> This hack happened on May 30th, 2011. So we're talking, we're coming up on the 12-year anniversary here soon. How do you remember in all the freaking hacks that you've done with such granularity how, how this hack, hack happened? I remember all my hacks, you know, or most of them. And, you know, I think this one was interesting because of the fact that it was real time, it was live, the internet was watching, Right. Because you have to remember, once the Biggie Small story, the Biggie and Tupac story went live, the Associated Press picked that story up. Now, half the internet was, you know, really thought that Tupac and Biggie were living in New Zealand. <laughs> and, um, and you know, Vice and Daily Dot and CNN and everybody's reporting about it literally live. So it was such a, a crazy, chaotic, emotional roller coaster because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to accomplish a goal. The original goal was to leave a message on the NewsHour website. That's all I wanted to do. Saying, hey, fuck you guys. You know, I support Chelsea Manning and, um, and you know, you know, leave her alone. That, that's really what my story was. Uh, my point was, but then it became, hey, let's do a proof of concept on how media can be manipulated. And hence, the Tupac and Biggie story became kind of a meme and a proof of concept of, yes, you can manipulate the media. But then I would say the struggle of maintaining access while PBS was trying to uh, mitigate my access, right? So, yeah, it was definitely one of those occasions where I, I, I will always remember it. And I do want to say something. I humbly apologize to PBS. And for all the systems and systems network administrators at that time, I'm so sorry. I owe you guys coffee. Probably more than coffee. I think they probably want a little something stronger after that, the night you put them through <laughs> that night. Yeah, <laughs> They had to explain how they kept kicked off the network. Uh, I'm sure it took him a little while to figure out how to happen. Yeah, well, it was it was a hell of a storm. I'll leave it at that. You brought up an interesting point. You brought up a, a botnet. And, and, you know, maybe some of the listeners don't quite understand what a botnet is. I know when I, I speak to, you know, some some lawyers, they don't quite understand what a bot is or a botnet. So why don't we dig into that for in the next five or ten minutes to kind of explain botnets and, and what's going on. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, absolutely. So a botnet is short for robot network. 
Um, what it is is a series of computers on the internet that have been taken over by a you know a, a criminal. Um, I'll, I'll say it's a criminal. Maybe it might not have to be, but but yeah, it, they they put malware on your computer. Let me ask you, Hector. Do you think if you have a botnet, you're a criminal? Well, it really depends, right? Well, I mean, what, show show me where it's not criminal activity to infect other people's computers um, with your with your malware. No, no, I, oh, okay. I would, I, I'm not referring to that at all. What I'm referring to is the concept of a botnet. We're talking about a cluster of computers working together, um, and they're operated by by some sort of system or processes, processes, uh, or groups or or, or functionality. Uh, we see clusters used all the time. We have load balancers today, right? But if we're talking about a botnet in relation to uh, people infecting computers with malware and then interconnecting those computers uh, for a distributed denial of service or collecting information, yeah, totally illegal. You just blew my fucking mind. I have only thought of a botnet is a negative terminology. Are you telling me that you sometimes think of a botnet as, as something useful, like a cluster? I mean, yeah. I mean, you can. You can. You can look. I at- mean, I agree with you. It fits the definition. I've just never thought of it that way. I mean, you're opening and broadening my mind right now. Well, think about it like this, right? So when people hear the word hacker, they immediately think, "Oh, that's bad." But hacking in, in concept is not a bad thing. You're tinkering, right? You're a tinkerer. And so if if like you could go to hackaday.com or all these different like you know um, daily hack sites and. You know, the content there is not, hey, here's how you break into the FBI Academy or, hey, here's how you hack into a foreign government. It's, hey, here's how you can take apart your phone and, you know, physically disable your 2G interface. And um, now, hey, now you're no longer, uh, uh, you know, uh, vulnerable to a stingray attack, right? So when you look at a botnet, the concept is the same as, as putting together a cluster. I'll give you a great example. Um, so if I'm doing an internal pen test or red team, and I'm able to extract the anti-DS file or, or the, let's say, a, a list of hashes that I need to crack offline. Then I would go to a site like vast.ai. I'll deploy three or four systems that have a bunch of GPUs, okay? And now I have essentially a botnet of machines cracking password hashes, right? Um, I'm doing this for my client, and I'm not using it towards denial of service. I'm not trying to destroy anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it really is, it's, it's apples to oranges really. All right. So let's just focus on bad guy botnets then. So this is, these are computers most likely that were compromised through malware. Um, and then now being controlled by what's called a C2 or a command and control server. It's a central authority. So it's, it's a central point that's used for the attacking party to, to command the other commuter computers in the network to simultaneously carry out some sort of coordinated effort. And the person who runs the C2 is normally called a bot herder. That's, you know, the guy running the C2, guy or girl running the C2. Is there, you, you talked about earlier how there really wasn't, um, you weren't really into DDoS. Um, is that really the power of the botnet is the DDoS, the, the distributed denial of service attack? And for those that don't know what that is, that's, that's using all these infected computers to send information at one or a group of computers in order for them to not be able to do what they're prescribed to do. Um, let's say you sent a DDoS to CNN.com. So you would send a whole bunch of information, packets of information to the web servers for CNN.com. And that would essentially 
flood them with information and they wouldn't be able to respond back to other people looking for that information. So sorry, Hector, buried in my explanation, there was a question about, um, you know, kind of the power of, of, of a botnet. Is it only used for DDoS or is it can be used for other things? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It really depends on the threat actors. So uh, there's two... There's two areas of interest for any adversary that has access to a botnet. Number one is power. If you have access to, you know, 200, 300,000 infected computers, uh, you could essentially attack almost any website on the internet or any infrastructure uh, by overloading services uh, or the network uh, bandwidth uh, with information, like you said, right? It's just, that's distributed denial of service. But there's another group of people that actually use botnets for a completely different reason. Back in the days, people used to use botnets for installing in mass adware to personal computers for the purpose of generating income. That was a big thing for a long time. But once that became not so viable in terms of generating funds, a lot of these actors, the same kind of actors, instead would use a botnet now for listening for sensitive information, credit cards, social security numbers, credentials, passwords, you name it, right? Um, also- that, Sorry, that's listening on the infected machines or using those bots to listen to other machines? No, no. The, the, the malware on the infected machines will listen for sensitive information between that machine and any other service. So, for example, if someone hops on an infected machine to connect to a bank and log in with their credentials, those credentials will be transferred back up to the command and control back up to the operators, right? So it's, it's essentially a, a waterfall of information that's just sitting there collecting, um, you know, over a period of time until uh, the, the lifespan of the, of the botnet. Because the botnets eventually are taken down or taken down in one way or another. I know for a fact that you've taken a few down yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't have a long life, lifespan. You know, we've heard of some botnets that have lasted maybe two years, maybe longer, uh, but usually these these kind of last for months at a time. Uh, but yeah, so those are the two main categories, right? It's either for power in, by means of denial of service or distributed denial of service or the collection of information. Uh, you may also see botnets used for things like mining Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, yeah. uh, like Monero, for example. Uh, you may also see botnets used to, to be used for like uh, uh, controlling votes, you know, or, or maybe... Sp- Spam advertisements or campaigns on Twitter and email. Controlling votes. Now we're getting controversial here. Ooh. <laughs> well, especially if you have a, a, a online voting system, you have to. You have to remember. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about like U.S. government elections. We're not. You know. We're, we're not getting going down that on hacker in the Fed is not going down that path today. We're talking more like uh, <laughs> like online voting for you know some poll or or something along those lines. I've also seen it in in email spamming. Um, and then also in like ticket sales, um, and they're also used long, a uh, big time in like shoe sales. There's like this market of people that you know sh- only like, like when the when Kanye West shoes came out, you know, like there's only a certain limited run, so they'd, they'd rent these bots out in order to make sure that they were able to purchase them and then resell at a much higher rate. Yeah, so that, that's a great point. I mean, that's a big problem that companies like. Amazon and Walmart, Nike, StockX, right? All of these companies are dealing with a problem where you have these botnet operators um, kind of renting out their botnets out to other operators. And these other operators, their entire point is to sell a service. And that service is residential proxies. I'm going to tell you why. 
Um, so first off, most of the affected computers or uh, machines are probably residential um, machines or machines that are connected to a residential address or IP address, right? We're not talking about like machines hosted at a data center. Um, and, and they can be, but basically that second operator is weed, uh, weeding out IPs that belong to real people. And those IPs will be used for automating the purchase of sneakers online uh, because some of the detection software that these companies use look for whether or not an IP is coming from a, uh, an IP address in Brooklyn and differentiating that with an IP from an AWS data center. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that there's, there's, you know, just to scare the crap out of some of our listeners, there's a new bot that came out in December, um, you know, just a couple, of le- the beginning of December last month called ZeroBot. It's a, it's a Go-based malware that propagates through vulnerabilities in, in both web applications and Internet of Things. So, I mean, these bots don't have to just be, you know, our computers online. It's also, we're talking about, you know, uh, firewalls, routers, our thermostats, uh, you know, anything that can really have a connection to the internet. Um, th- these bot herders are using for, for infections and, and to increase their power. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, even looking at the data. So uh, a big shout out to my, my friends at Gray Noise. They have the data online essentially for free. Um, and I'm looking here. Over the last 30 days, between January 3rd, 2022, and January 2nd, 2023, and remember, this is just one data set from one organization, Great Noise. Um, there are other companies that do the same kind of research. These guys have observed 235,769 IP addresses associated to the Mirai worm or botnet. Wow. Uh, and, uh, come on, Chris, you know the Mirai botnet is several years old by now. Um, and so the fact that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of unique IP addresses associated to, still to this day is pretty bizarre. As for the daily count, I'm looking at the count for yesterday, uh, January 1st. Um, and what we have for that day is 26,408 unique IP addresses of actively scanning IP addresses. These are, these are hosts that are, um, you know, uh, the assumption is they're compromised and they're scanning the internet looking for other victims to automatically compromise and add to the botnet. So yeah, it's, it's a big business. There's a lot of money involved here. And like, kind of like we, we kind of broke it down into categories. It's, it's quite broad what you can do with botnets and how uh, attackers will actually use these things. So what are we going to prescribe to our listeners to stay safe from being uh, part of a botnet or being taken over by a botnet? We have to look at what these botnets are configured to exploit today. And most of them are exploiting known vulnerabilities, with the exception of some you know, malware here and there using zero days, right? Uh, but they're mostly infecting devices that have known vulnerabilities. So what does that mean for the end user? What does that mean for our audience? Patch management. Yeah, patch management slash asset management, right? Yep. And depending on, on what kind of company you're talking about, vulnerability management. You want to be able to make sure that if, for example, if we're talking about a, a nice, uh, one of our audience members, they're, they're living at home, they have a, you know, they have a family, kids, wife, dog, right? They have their home office, they're working from home. Maybe it's time you take a look at your router and, um, you know, communicate with your with your vendor, your ISP, your internet service provider. Um, maybe even look at the version on the tags behind the router. 
to see when it was manufactured, when you actually installed it, and ask yourself, well, when was the last time this device was updated? When was the last time it was reset? When was the last time it was reset? I mean, how many people, you know, reset their routers every so often, you know? Um, uh, Look on your bill and see what you're paying for internet service and and the speed. And then just go and Google speed tests. Run a a speed test. See how fast things are going. If your internet isn't anywhere near the the speed that you're paying, it it should be at least half or around half uh, of whatever you're paying. I don't know how they do their math, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it always comes out funny that way. Um, You know, something else might be going on. That's a simple test for the listeners. If you don't, you know, want to get into looking at network traffic or anything like that, just see, see if your internet's going, you know, at least half the speed you're paying. Uh, and if it's not, start looking into things, you know, uh, and, and like like Hector said, every home router has a, a login, log in and update that firmware. Um, you know, it's it, it's an easy fix uh, to try to keep you, you know, up to date on some of these things. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, even if even if you have a router or a smart device that isn't easily manageable, because some devices, they, they don't they don't even come with instructions on how to log into the administrative portal or how to update the device. Right. Um, you know, some of these manufacturers uh, do not have or follow a process um, in terms of documentation. And so you have customers that have, you know, aging devices on the network that, you know, that are basically uh, backdoors into your environment. You, you don't want to deal with that. Uh, so look at, you know, if you have an Alexa at home or if you have a Google smart home, start adding those devices to those, to those applications. Um, see if there's any updates available. Contact your vendor. Look at the router. Look at your modem. See who makes it. Go to the website. See if there's any updates. I mean, the point is you have to be proactive about your security measures in order to have, you know, a, a mature uh, security posture. If you don't, then maybe one day while you're trying to watch something on Netflix or or on Hulu and you feel that your internet's super slow, you know, you might be a part of a botman. And that's not a good thing whatsoever. No, not at all. Not if you could think about what these guys are using your computers for. Um, you know, the, they're profiting off of, of your machine, your connections, what you're paying for. Um, so, you know, just think about it and, and try not to try not to allow it to happen and, and do what you can do to, to, to stop it and clean it up a little bit. Well, that brings me up to a question, uh, Chris, if you don't mind. Sure. So in, have you ever been involved in a case or have, have heard of a case where someone's computer was legitimately hacked and it was used for something nefarious? Um, I know a lot of people tend to use that as, as an excuse, like, hey, I was hacked. But have you really ever found a case where someone was hacked and their computers were used for, like, DDoS or or, or hosting porn or something? Absolutely. I, I know of, uh, you know, I can't get into a lot of details on it, but I know that, you know, there has been, like, uh, FBI agents have served search warrants on places, and it was just because the computer, that was the one hosting the last hot point or, or hosting the child exploitation pictures. Um, you know, the, the IP address was listed on that and, and, you know, it's, it, that, that could happen. Um, you wouldn't want the FBI raiding your house mistakenly at six o'clock in the morning, um, because you didn't keep your router up to date. Oh yeah. That, that's such a great point. And, you know, there's this one thing, I mean, I, I, I'm always updating everything in my home. Like I wake up in the morning and I always check to see if my Linux machines are updated, but there's always in the back of my mind, I'm expecting to like wake up and look at my thermometer, my thermostat, sorry. <laughs> Look at my, ther- my smart thermostat and see like, you know, 1337 on the screen. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm always waiting for that day. I'm like, oh, my God, it finally happened. That'll be it. So, um, Hector, great conversation. Um, I know you and I have talked about it quite a bit, um, but, you know, starting a new year, 
Um, I really wanted to talk to the audience uh, about this, and, and we've talked about it quite a bit. The, the feedback that we are getting from the audience is tremendous. Hector and I are getting inundated with questions uh, about cybersecurity, about how to get careers in cybersecurity. Um, and it's all positive, positive feedback. So we love it. We love interacting with our listeners. So we try to get back to as many as we can. You know, there's a lot of questions that are sitting there. We can't do a questions episode every week, uh, but I'll tell you that your questions help shape some of the episodes we have, but really love hearing from the audience. So if you have a question, uh, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. So again, that's the best place to get a hold of us, uh, questions at hackerinthefed.com. Awesome. Yeah, please do. We love the questions. And, you know, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful and I feel blessed that, Chris, one, that you're in my life, you're, you're a great friend of mine, but also um, the fact that we, was, we were able to work on something very cool, even if it's just us nerding it out for an hour. Like I, I do appreciate the experience, and I'm also glad that the audience enjoys it, so let's keep it up. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and you know, we've been uh, pushing out there the another email sponsor at HackerInTheFed.com uh, if you want to sponsor the show. A lot of great sponsors have reached out to us. Um, our, our executive producer is putting together those deals. I think we're just you know one or two more deals away from you know locking up another year of Hacker in the Fed. Um, so that that'll be great. So again, if you you want to sponsor the show, reach out to us at sponsor at HackerInTheFed.com. Uh, new episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, another great conversation. Happy New Year, friend. Uh, and I will talk to you again next week.